And I invite you to open your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. It's less read in your hearing already. I want to read it through again. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Lord Jesus, as we read this, your second letter of the seven, we pray for understanding. We pray for insight. We pray as we sang to the Lion of Judah, who does fight the battles and is strong. And we pray to the Lamb that was slain, who won ultimate victory over death through your own sacrifice. And we worship you, Lord Jesus, the first and the last, who was dead and has become alive again. And we seek you, Lord Jesus, in this age and in these days, We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will keep our eyes on you. We pray, Lord Jesus, for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We pray for the church in these last days. We pray recognizing, Lord Jesus, there is persecution. There is suffering and there continues even to be martyrdom in the world today among Christians in such a way that that we are honestly, Lord, unfamiliar in this country. Our problems are small by comparison. But we lift up the church throughout the world. We pray, Lord, that you will, before our brothers and sisters in difficult, in persecuted places, we pray that you will show up, Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we pray for the comfort that comes from knowing among our brothers and sisters, that you are the Lamb who was slain. Father, it's a serious topic this morning, I know, I understand that. But even in the most serious of conversation and study, there is deep joy. And I pray our joy will not be lost in our conversation, in our discussion, in our study, through your word today. Holy Spirit, move among us, teach us, help us to learn In Jesus' name, amen. 66 books, one revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we study through this, we come now to the letter of the church in Smyrna, and I realize that the book of Revelation could just as easily be referred to as the testimony of Jesus. 
The testimony of Jesus. Look all the way back at chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus. And if you go all the way to the end of the Revelation, chapter 19, which actually isn't the end, but but further to the end, verse 10, we read the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The whole point of the prophecies of the Bible come down to one thing, one revelation, one testimony, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's a testimony that began to bleed onto the prophetic pages ages before he came the first time. Here's a sample. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 6,000 years ago, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum, or First Gospel. And it's the first time we see mentioned that there is going to be a bruising. The Lord is talking to the serpent, talking to Satan in that context. And He said, He's going to bruise you on the head. He's going to crush your head. But you're going to bruise Him on the heel first. And then 4,000 years ago, in Genesis 22, verse 8, we see Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And in verse 14 of that same chapter, Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, because the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And he did. He did. And it was provided. And Mount Moriah was that mount. The hill of Calvary. What a coincidence that Abraham and Isaac would end up on the hill of Calvary. And Abraham would be asked to take his son, his only son, whom he loved Isaac, and sacrifice him there. And then Abraham prophetically states, God will provide a lamb. And God did on that very mountain, on the crest of of the crucifixion of the Christ. Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. The testimony of Jesus. And the testimony continues. We see it in the Passover Lamb of Exodus chapter 12. We see it in all the blood sacrifices, all five of the unique sacrifices that Israel was supposed to engage in in the temple that God lays out specifically in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. And he explains why in Leviticus 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. We would find out that life is the life of Jesus. And that blood represented or foreshadowed the blood of Jesus. We hear the testimony of Jesus Christ in the prophecies of such as as Balaam, Numbers 24. Moses, Deuteronomy 15. And we see it in Joshua and his story. We read about it in the Judges. We hear it in the story of Ruth. We continue on and the testimony spills out in the Psalms of David and from all the Hebrew prophets, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, 16. 3,000 years ago, David wrote, They pierced my hands and my feet. And they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Or Isaiah the prophet, 
2,750 years ago. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed, note that, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. You can go back 2,500 years to Daniel the prophet, chapter 9, verse 26, where he said specifically, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the phrase cut off in the Hebrew specifically speaks of murder. The Messiah will be murdered. 2,400 years ago, Zechariah the prophet, chapter 12, verse 10, speaking, Jesus speaking through him, saying, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And of course, 2,000 years ago, John the Apostle, same writer of the Revelation, same at least penman of the Revelation, he wrote in John 1.14, the Word became flesh. You might say the testimony. Became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In life, in death, and in life again, Jesus personified the love of God. Jesus is the testimony. The testimony is Jesus. You know this. But it didn't come easy. It never has. There's pain in the prophecy. There are wounds in the witness. There are tears in the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what do you suppose that means for those who follow Him? For those who say, I will take up after Him. I will live as He lived. I'm going to do the things that He did. I'm going to listen to His Word and I'm going to obey. If He Himself is the testimony, what does that mean for us as we testify to Jesus? You see, the word testimony in the Greek is martyreo. It means to bear witness. It comes from the word martus, which is witness, or it's where we get our word, you know, martyr. Martyr. In Strong's Concordance, James Strong's wrote, Those who, after His example, have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. That's martyrdom. That's the martus. And in our day and in our age, we need to understand a martyr is not just one who dies for the cause. A true martyr is one whose death, whose personal sacrifice testifies of the truth speaks the truth, declares the truth of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Smyrna. Take a look now at the suffering church. To the angel, verse 8, of the church in Smyrna, write. Smyrna, like Ephesus before, it was another seaport city. Smyrna was 35 miles, is still in existence, 35 miles to the north of Ephesus, Second only to Ephesus in the wealth and the riches of Asia Minor. It's a beautiful city. It it continues to be, by the way. It's still there. It's a beautiful city today. It's Izmir. Smyrna, Izmir. Izmir comes from Smyrna. Both from the same root. Izmir is the third largest city in Turkey today. Sprawling. Now, Ephesus was called in the day the light of Asia. We discussed that a week ago. 
Smyrna was called the crown of Asia, or the glory of Asia. Why? Because atop Mount Pagos, which is the primary mount right there near the sea, it rises up above the sea, and the city lies all around its foothills. But as you would go up the mount, what was set there atop that mountain was a crown of beautiful architecture and flowers and hedges and myrtle trees. People would look up and they would say, there's the crown. It's the crown of Asia. But for all its wealth and its beauty and its commerce and its splendor, Smyrna was home to a people living in extreme poverty and extreme persecution. Again, the church at Smyrna. Their letter is the shortest one, just four verses compared to the others. But prophetically speaking, what we learn of Smyrna, the longevity of their suffering, would truly span three centuries and reaches into eternity. What do you mean? Tertullian was the one who made that comment back around 200 A.D. The blood of the martyrs is seed. I've quoted that a few times over the years. I think about that from time to time. The blood of the martyrs is seed. And those under persecution and those suffering for the name of Jesus recognize that it is seed in the cultures in which they live. China, the persecuted church in China, has declared, don't pray that we would stop being persecuted. For when we stop, when we're no longer persecuted, we will no longer grow. The blood of the martyrs is seed. read a story just this morning about a group of people climbing into a boat with all their fishing gear on their backs. They climbed into a boat headed out on the river. They got out further into the river, deep into the waters, dropped an anchor, reached deep into their packs, and pulled out torn and tattered Bibles. It's a church in North Korea. They have to meet that way. And while having Bible study out on the river, away from all other people, they were watching, they were paranoid. They saw another boat uh, approaching them and quickly stuffed all the Bibles down into their packs, uh, terrified that they were being captured. And as the boat pulled up beside theirs, the person in the boat said, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I have brought Bibles to you. Not everyone in this small Bible study even had a Bible, but the Bibles were passed out and they rejoiced like nobody rejoices. They were thrilled to receive brand new beautiful Bibles. And so this man who brought the Bibles to them took their tattered Bibles and gave them all brand new ones. He went back to his hotel and stuffed those old Bibles away, meaning to, to take care of them, do something with them, maybe smuggle them out of the country. And when he came back to his room, they had disappeared. You see, a janitor in the hotel took the Bibles home to his Bible study. <laughs> Thief. <laughs> this just happened this year in North Korea. The persecuted church. And Smyrna represents that. Thanks to their martyreto, thanks to their testimony, the Word of God became seated deep in the soil of history and of humanity, and the persecuted church grew up pure and strong. The persecuted church, that's Smyrna. Keep this in mind. We read, as with the other seven letters, Jesus begins with a component of His character. 
A component of his character. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. And remember, every letter has a component that was already described by John in the first chapter. Not the whole thing. Every church in every letter doesn't get the whole thing. They would get it in chapter 1. But each letter repeats just one aspect of the nature of the character of Jesus Christ. And Smyrna hears this, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. Well, that's interesting. Smyrna was known as the city that was dead, but came back to life. Historically speaking, in 600 B.C., the Lydians destroyed Smyrna, wiped it out, flattened it. For 400 years, it was non-existent until 200 B.C. when it sprang back to life. And it became the beautiful seaport city that it was in the time of the first century. But I read this and I think practically. If you were the suffering church, if we here at the bridge were the persecuted church, what better to hear than Jesus say, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. I am the first and the last, he declares. That's, that's the divine declaration. That's straight out of Isaiah. We've already read the verses, Isaiah 41, verse 4. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Isaiah 48, verse 12, where the Lord God declares loud and clear, I am the first and I am with the last. The first and the last. But it's also remarkably comforting. He says, I am the protos and the eschatos in the Greek. Protos and eschatos. Eschatos, that's where we get our word eschatology, which means at the last. The protos, I was here before you. I'm the first. And the eschatos, I'll be here awaiting you. Think you've gone through some pain? Think you've experienced some hardship? Guess what? I was there before you. I went through it long before you went through it. And I will be here at the last when you come through the other side. Man, for anyone suffering hardship, especially in the name of Jesus, He came before and He will be there at the end. What joy in that realization. He's waiting. He'll be there waiting for us. When He calls, come up here and we go. Guess what? He'll be awaiting because He is with the last as He is also the first. I love the verse. We've quoted it many times, especially since we study Hebrews. Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, He says. Five negatives in that one verse. Literally, I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. It's not going to happen. I'm the first. And I am the last. Who... Literally, literally, who became dead and has come to life. He might as well have said, I've already gone through the worst that anyone might possibly ever endure. First and the last, the one who became dead and came to life. But it's strange, at least on the surface, that such a letter would be sent off to Smyrna. Strange to realize that so much suffering and sorrow could be going on in the crown city of myrrh. Because that's what Smyrna means. You Bible students know that. Smyrna means myrrh. It's Mir. The Turkish uh, city today means myrrh. That's where it comes from. 
Oh, the beautiful myrrh. It's a, a thick, gummy, resinous sap. Myrrh is. And it's used for multiple purposes, especially in the first century. It was used for incense and perfumes. Very sweet smelling when, when it was broken down to that point. It was used for anesthesia. Medical, medicinal purposes. It was also used as a burial spice. And in ancient times, it was considered more valuable than gold. So Smyrna, the city was named this way for for beauty, for luxury, for wealth. A city worth more than the value of gold, the crown city of myrrh. Myrrh. Myrrh was a part of the mixture of the anointing oil for the holy temple and the tabernacle. You can read about it in Exodus 30, verses 23 and 24, where there's an entire mix that was required for that anointing oil, and myrrh was part of that requirement. It's a a word that's really only used specifically three times in the New Testament. We see it a fourth time, myrrh. The first time is Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It's inextricably tied to the story of the birth of Jesus. You're going to hear the word myrrh used by people who don't even know what it is during the Christmas holidays. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Well, it really wasn't at the birth of Jesus. It was more likely a couple of years later. But in Matthew 2.11 it says, After coming into the house, the Magi, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. I would point that out to my Catholic brothers and sisters. They fell to the ground and worshipped him, not her. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, oh, gold for a king, and frankincense, which is a spice for a priest. And then, of course, myrrh for a dead man. Etiquette tip. Next time you go to a baby shower... Don't bring a burial spice for a gift. It's just weird. It'll just shut down the shower. Yeah, just in case baby doesn't make it, here you go. What are you thinking? For the next time we see myrrh is at the crucifixion of Jesus, Mark fifteen twenty two. They brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. But he didn't take it. Why would they mix myrrh with wine? It's a numbing drug. And the Romans would do this to numb the pain, to keep the person alive longer hanging on that cross. Three, four, five days perhaps. To make them live through this pain. And so they would numb it just a little bit, and then of course the pain would come back. Well, Jesus refused to take it. Not even a drop. Why? Because Jesus had something else that he would fully imbibe. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It's well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drink and drain down its dregs. And the cup of Psalm 75 described that way is the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus drank it to the dregs. He would not receive myrrh in his crucifixion. But myrrh was placed on Jesus. You see, myrrh also was worked into embalming. It's it's how the the original substance, that gummy resinous substance, would work. John 19.39 says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, 
And so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. They took these strips of linen and they soaked them in this myrrh and aloe uh, substance and they wrapped the body with these soaked linen strips and it would harden. And when it hardened, it literally encased the entire body. The fourth mention of myrrh is really only implied. It comes just moments after Jesus no longer needed it. Mark chapter 16, verse 1, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices, perhaps myrrh was involved in this, so that they might come and anoint Him. They came back to finish the work of Nicodemus and and Joseph of Arimathea. Came back to make sure that that Jesus was truly and lovingly and properly anointed and embalmed for His burial. But He's the first and the last. He's the one who became dead and has come to life, right? They would never use those spices that day. There was no need because there was no body because there was no Jesus. And listen to this remarkable prophecy. This is out of Isaiah chapter 60. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Isaiah chapter 60, it's right about in the middle of your Bibles, maybe a little bit to the left. Because the left needs the Bible. So does the right. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, which reads... Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. And it did, and it will. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. And your daughters will be carried in the arms. And then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will thrill and rejoice. Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and of Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. No myrrh. No more myrrh. Because the myrrh is no longer necessary. Yes, they'll bring the gold for a king. Yes, the frankincense for the priest. But he was dead and he is now alive. Amen? He has come to life and he will return again. Why does Isaiah not even mention the myrrh? Because it's irrelevant at that point. It's superfluous. As Romans 6 verse 10 reads, Paul says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, after the intro, go back to Revelation chapter 2. Following this intro, the rest of the letter is very different than the other seven, or the other six. It's the most unique letter among the seven. It has no commendation as all the others do. There is no criticism in this little letter. No correction whatsoever. But what there is, is a deep compassion. A deep sense in these few words of understanding. And you know what you get from Jesus in this? For this suffering, persecuted, impoverished church... 
you get Jesus reaching to them with tenderness. Well, that sounds like Jesus. A bruised reed He will not break. And a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Isaiah 42, verse 3. While continuing in the letter, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. How much comfort is simply in those few words? How about for you, when when you're hurting, when you're sorrowful, when you are going through affliction of some kind, be it physical or, or, or emotional or relational, and you realize that Jesus knows. I know your tribulation. I get it. I understand it. The word tribulation here, it's a hard word to say in the Greek. It's flipsis. Philipsis. T-H-L. Try putting a T-H-L together in any word. It's not easy to do. Philipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. And it translates either affliction, tribulation, or crushing. Crushing. I know you're crushing. I know you're crushing tribulation. You're crushing affliction. Listen, that sappy resin of myrrh that is so moist... That, that, that was spread out on the linen cloths and wrapped around the body of Jesus and would harden into an encasement, as it were. That resin did just that. When not mixed for embalming, myrrh would just solidify into little teardrop-shaped nuggets. Little tiny, stony little nuggets. And those nuggets then, when worked by the perfumers, would be crushed into powder and once crushed would yield their sweet aroma. And that was such the value of myrrh that was sold for fragrance. It wasn't the bitter resin. It was the crushed powder that then could be mixed into beautiful scents and perfumes. The church of Smyrna was the church of the crushing. A crushing tribulation. They probably didn't know that the scent of their suffering was in all truth the sweet smell of success. We rarely do when we are in affliction. We rarely understand the positive outcome, the consequences that are for the kingdom, that that have a better result when we're in the midst of that affliction. But Jesus says, I know your flipsis. I know your crushing. I know your affliction. John 16.33, He says, in the world you have flipsis, tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. And by the way, the the tribulation he speaks of here in verse 9 is tribulation with a lowercase t. It's not the tribulation that we will begin to talk about chapters 6 through 18. It is not the great tribulation which refers, I believe, to the latter half of the seven year tribulation, the wrath of God. This is tribulation with a little t. It's any affliction gone through specifically here for followers of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.29, Paul said, It has been granted to you. It's a gift. For Christ's sake, not only to believe into him, in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Have we been taught enough about the precious perfume of persecution in the church? Have we taken the time to consider what it truly means in These last days. What does it mean for us? What does it mean when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted. I want to give you my opinion, and please don't take personal offense because I include myself in all of this. With the exception of physical disease, the majority of suffering in the American church is self-inflicted. We've done it to ourselves. We cry out under the weight of guilt or shame or sin. These things have become the root of suffering in the American church. We come and we're sorrowful, broken-hearted, and we can look at a path of carnage behind us because of choices we have made. When we talk about the persecuted church, the suffering church in the world, we are still not that church, my friends. There are a few florists, bakers, who are beginning to understand the kind of persecution that the church in Smyrna went through. But most of us, and I in particular, do not get that. Have not experienced that weight of persecution. Almost to the point that I read this letter, and as I did this last week, I said, Lord, I'm not sure of the application here. This is not just comfort for those who have messed up their lives, as so many of us have from time to time. And yes, there is strong and great and wonderful comfort for those in pain and physical disease, suffering from some ailment. There is comfort in a family when you've had, perhaps, children or family members reject you because you believe in Jesus. But not to the extent of suffering Smyrna. We have not suffered this way. Not this far. And so my hope and my prayer is that we can learn from the Christians of Smyrna. They are good teachers of a sweeter testimony. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. This word poverty, tokia, it literally translates extreme indigence to the point of beggary. This is those who have lost nothing. It means to be completely destitute. Those who are impoverished with this word are those who have nothing, who have lost it all, and yet what does God call them? <laughs> rich. Oh, I know your poverty, but you're rich. You are the rich ones. And it reminds me that God has such a different economy than we do. He functions in a completely different place. As the Hebrew pastor encouraged his readers, Hebrews 10.34, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Do you know what happens in North Korea if you are heard speaking the name of Jesus? To this day, it will amount to 15 years in a hard labor camp. 15 years because you said Jesus? If you have a Bible in your possession, far worse. (laughs) We don't know that kind of persecution. These are those who were intensely impoverished, who had lost everything. And by the way, interestingly, opposite Smyrna, both geographically and evidently, was lukewarm, luxurious Laodicea. God looks at impoverished Smyrna and He says, Oh, you are so rich. 
And he looks then at Laodicea and says in Revelation 3.17, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The wealthiest in the world without Jesus, God looks at it and says, That is extreme poverty. And the most impoverished in the world who have Jesus, God says, that is riches and wealth eternal. God's economy. We would do well to think in terms of God's economy and not our economy. Regardless of how it affects Tuesday's voting. (laughs) You know, in the glory days of the Renaissance church, the Catholic church, it's told, a story was told, don't know if it's true, but I'll pass it along to you anyway, of the Pope showing a visitor around the riches of the Vatican, pointing out all the treasures. And the Pope apparently said, we no longer have to say what Peter told the lame man, silver and gold have I none. And the man with him said, yes, but neither can you say rise up and walk. Good point. My friends, the power is not in the purse. The power in the Bridge Christian Fellowship will never be in our reserves, in our bank accounts, in our holdings. The power will be that of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And should He choose for us to lose everything, including this building, and end up back begging on the steps of the Gilmore's home to use the barn one more time, (laughs) powerful things would happen. Don't bemoan the blessings. I am thankful every day. For all that God has done. But we recognize it's Him. And we thank Him for it. The church of Smyrna, listen. They were by far the poorest church of the seven. And yet I think we can say without reservation, they were the most pure. Poorest and the purest. Now, they were being hit from two sides. They were being hit by pagans, Rome, the culture, and by so-called Jews. Note this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy. By those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Understand, first of all, he says, I know the blasphemy. It is blasphemy to even name yourself after God. To claim to be following Him. And yet to be opposed to what He's doing. I know the blasphemy of these. They say they are Jews, and they are not. Now, please hear me, this is not anti-Semitic. There are also Christians, or people who say they are Christians, and they are not. We're talking about those who are living in name only, not who are those who are living by faith. And a large number of the Jews living in Smyrna were aligned with Rome. They liked the good life. Hey, in beautiful... Smyrna, the crown of Asia, things are good. Why would we want to mess that up? And here come these Christians claiming to have come out of Israel and we want nothing to do with them. We want nothing, no involvement whatsoever. Smyrna. Smyrna was also the launch pad of Caesar worship in the Roman world. It didn't start out that way. It actually started out, they had a monument there in Smyrna to the spirit of Rome. We just want to honor the spirit of Rome. And ultimately that became an actual temple to Tiberius. 
And in that temple to Tiberias, according to civic law in Smyrna, everyone who lived there was required annually to offer a pinch of incense to the Caesar in worship at the temple of Tiberias. When Jesus says, note this, they, are, they say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan is probably a veiled reference to the temple of Tiberias. It would be a synagogue of Satan because there were Jews going there and offering the pinch of incense and worshiping Tiberius once a year. Oh, they didn't do it, you know, meaning anything by it. I mean, we're just trying to fly under the radar. We'll just do this so the culture doesn't recognize that we're any different. We'll just kind of be part of the thing. We'll be tolerant. We'll coexist. We'll align ourselves with the culture itself. Pinch of myrrh here, dash of paganism there, and a simple secular way to fly under the radar and appease the culture. These are those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan, literally worshiping at a false temple. And these Jews were opposed to the church. Stood opposed to the Christians, aligned with Rome. And by the way, the die was cast decades earlier. What do you mean? John nineteen fifteen, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. You know, it reminds me, sin rarely just happens. Usually, sin starts long before it's enacted. Long before we engage in it, we have already started down that path. We have already claimed another king. And therefore, when the opportunity comes up, people dive in. So you have Jews coming against the church of Smyrna, aligned with Rome. Of course, the Roman citizens there coming against the church of Smyrna. And the people of the church of Smyrna would not offer sacrifice to Tiberius. You might say, what's the big deal? I mean, for your existence... Just throw a little pinch on the fire and do your nod and get your certificate and go home. It's easy. And then you can worship Jesus all the rest of the year. But they wouldn't do it. They refused. And Jesus offers them now a crucial caution of what's about to hit. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold the devil, which illuminates who's behind all this in the first place. It's really not the false Jews. It's really not the Romans. It's the spiritual realm. It's the demonic. It's Satan himself. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. At the beginning of verse 10, note this where it says, Do not fear. Literally translated, it's stop being afraid. Because they had to be. Wouldn't you be? The day of the offering is coming up. The incense bowls are all set out. People are lined up and you're in that line. And you know that you know that you know that you cannot offer a pinch of incense to Tiberius. And the fear begins to well up. It's there. It's a natural human response. Jesus says, hey, 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 stop being afraid. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. But don't fear it. Don't be afraid of it. Some of you are going to be cast into prison and you're facing a 10-day tribulation. That historical church in Smyrna did exactly that. Now, we don't know exactly how long. We can assume it was 10 days. 
Because that's what he says. So if we just take it in its most literal sense, the ten day tribulation would have been a week and a half of intense suffering that the church was about to go through just as they received this letter from Jesus. Be ready for this. It's going to get even worse than it usually is for ten days. But here's where we see something of the prophetic church of Smyrna. Because from the mid-60s all the way up to 325, the birthing of the church, the beginning of the church, in that time frame, we can note ten successive waves of persecution. Ten different waves. Beginning with Nero, a wave of horrific persecution in which both Peter and Paul were martyred. A wave of persecution under Domitian, who was emperor at the time that John was sent off to Patmos. And then Trajan, and Marcus Aurelius, and Severus, not Snape, and Maximinius, and Decius, and Valerian, and Aurelian, and Diocletian. Diocletian was the last one, and under Diocletian there was a ten year persecution of the church. Ten days, ten waves, ten years, whatever it all means, we know we can look at the history of the early church. First, second, and third century, all three going into this, we know that Christians were fed to wild dogs. You know how they did it? They would put animal skins on them, fresh, bloody animal skins. They would wrap around these Christians, throw them into the arena, and let loose wild dogs who would go after the blood on the skins and tear the Christians apart. Feeding them to hungry lions. You've heard those stories. Just for sport, Christians were crucified. They were dipped in wax and lit up as human torches alive. These things and worse happened early on. And it's estimated anywhere from 5 to some even estimate 7 million Christians were martyred for their faith in Jesus in the first 300 years of the church. A massive amount of persecution going on all at once. But you know, you almost can't talk about Smyrna without talking about a beloved pastor. I shared this story last time we studied this. I think it's worth hearing again and understanding. Some called this man the angel of the church at Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp. He was the last disciple of John. So Polycarp knew John, was discipled, trained up by John, writer of the Revelation. Polycarp himself trained another whose name was Irenaeus. So when I quote to you things from Irenaeus, who wrote Against Heresies, that was his famous work. When I quote from Against Heresies, understand that was written by a man who was trained by Polycarp, who was trained by John. So the significance when I bring up that name from time to time, and we have many times over the last several months, when you hear the name Irenaeus, this guy was close to the very beginning. But Polycarp, Polycarp, in 155 A.D., at the urging of his devoted disciples, he fled the city, the city of Smyrna. And in the outskirts of the city, he hid out on a farm there, 86 years old, he didn't want to flee his, his flock, his church, his people, but he got out because a price was put on his head 
He was sought by the authorities, and his disciples said, please, we need you to be around a little longer. So he figured, all right, maybe there's more the Lord has for me. And he goes out to this farm, and he's hiding out there, when one night in 155, he has a dream. The dream of Polycarp was that suddenly, the pillow underneath his head burst into flames. He awoke, and Eusebius tells us this, he interpreted the vision to those who were present. He opened up the book of things to come. What book do you suppose that was? The Revelation. He opens up Revelation. I wonder if he didn't, in fact, read the letter to the church at Smyrna, of which he was pastor, but he opens it up, and Eusebius says, leaving his friends in no doubt that for Christ's sake, he would depart this life that day by fire. They moved him from this farm to another farm. Because word reached them that the Romans were coming. But a disciple betrayed him and the Romans followed on to the next farm and caught him there. They were amazed when they caught up with Polycarp. For one thing that he was 86 years old and and this frail older man, how could this man be such a threat to the empire? And they put him up on a donkey and they began to take him back into the city of Smyrna. And as he rode along, a lot of the soldiers began saying, Oh man, just recant. <laughs> just give it up. Just let go of it. All you have to do is just say the word and we can take you back to the farm right now. And, and he wouldn't do it. He refused. Finally, one of the soldiers got so frustrated with Polycarp, they knocked him off the donkey onto the ground. They picked him up and dusted him off and drove him on into the city. In the city. He was brought into an arena where the chant was going around, Polycarp has been arrested. Polycarp has been arrested. And they brought him out and the people began chanting for his death. The proconsul there, he's looking at, again, this elderly man. And and he says to him, in essence, "Just, just throw a pinch of incense. Just throw a pinch on the altar to Caesar. Reprove Christ and I'll set you free right now. And Polycarp said, quote, Six and eighty years have I served him. And he never once has wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So the soldiers began to gather around Polycarp. What they would do to burn you in, in the fire, would, they would tie you up and then they would nail you, either nail you personally or they would nail the ropes into a stake behind you so that you couldn't get away. They came to tie him up. They brought the nails and Polycarp said, leave me. He said, he who will give me strength to sustain the fire will help me not to flinch from the pile. So uniquely, they loosely tied his hands behind his back and piled the wood around him. He could have fled. He didn't. He stood there. Witnesses say as they lit the fire that it leapt up like a vault around him. But it didn't reach him. Strangely, the fire just wasn't getting to Polycarp. He's standing there in the middle of the blaze as this goes on. And and the people were, were chanting him, getting angry. Finally, an executioner was called in, and he brought his long spear and drove it into Polycarp's right shoulder. The blood just began to stream out. And again, witnesses said, so much blood streamed out of Polycarp that it doused the fire. And in that moment, as the smoke of the fire rose up, there were witnesses there who said, a dove flew out of the smoke. Another witness said he heard God say, Polycarp is dead. 
They checked the body of the old man. He was dead, but they relit the fire anyway and burned him down to his bones. His loving disciples came along and gathered up the bones of Polycarp for an appropriate burial. But one more thing that Eusebius records and I find fascinating in this story of Polycarp. Many witnesses there said there was no smell of flames or of burning flesh, but oddly a strange, sweet fragrance filled the air that smelled like myrrh. A fragrance of myrrh. Jesus says at the end of verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The Bible talks about five different crowns. I'm not going to go into them right now, but there are five crowns promised to followers of Jesus in the New Testament. We'll probably talk about them in an upcoming study, Lord willing. But the crown of life, the crown of life is the promise of the persecuted. The guarantee for those who suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. And every one of these who received the original recipients of this letter there in Smyrna of the first century and the recipients who would read this letter across 300 years of the persecuted church. And in fact, brothers and sisters up to this very point who have died in the name of Jesus, they will receive the crown of life. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise first. They're the first to go up. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Remarkable, the devil tried to crush the church. See, he tried to infiltrate first. You know, after a a brief attack in the 60s, he really tried to just get into the church. And we see Ephesus having forgotten their first love because they're fighting against this infiltration. And when that didn't work, he unleashed... All of his vitriol, all of his hatred, all of his anger, and so went for the jugular of Smyrna, the suffering church. And all his effort did was deeply seed the church in the world. I wondered, back when we studied this in 2005, I wondered, why would you birth the church into an era of such deep persecution? My, my son Corey was, was born at Tacoma General in, in the midst of a time where there was great gang violence going on. Why would you take your son? Because I didn't know. <laughs> God knew exactly what He was doing when He birthed the church into persecution. And when those first 300 years, unparalleled, the persecution the church would go through, it seeded the gospel in the world. It developed a strong and a vibrant people who loved Jesus Christ. A church that would be so strong that, well, by the next letter we'll see how things begin to unravel, but the seeds were already there, the roots already went deep. Tertullian was right, the blood of martyrs is seed. Did you know that since 1900, 300,000 Christians have been martyred annually? Every year, for the last 118 years, 300,000 Christians have been martyred in the world. We remain, Christians remain, the most persecuted people on the earth. Anti-Semitism in America this year has risen 59%, which is frightening. 
But persecution of Christians in the world, even this year, far outpaces anti-Semitism. You don't hear about that in the news. You don't read about that online. And by the way, and we're going to pray about this in a moment, did you know that today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church? I didn't even know that. I woke up this morning and I read that. It's like, and we're talking about Smyrna? We need to be praying for the persecuted church. This is reality in the world. Why, why, why does God allow it? Well, two reasons and we'll finish. Number one, testing. He allows it for our testing. We read about that in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that, here's why, you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. It's about the testing. But understand that test here, uh, pyrazo in the Greek, means to test or to try or to prove. You're going to be proven, Jesus says. This persecution, this tribulation is coming to prove you. Which is a strengthening effect. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you go through times of tribulation, little t, when you face affliction, the degree that you you face that affliction in the name of Jesus will prove you. Not prove your faithfulness to the Lord, but will prove to yourself and to the world round about you that you belong to Jesus. The tribulation is not a bad thing. It is a proving thing. Suffering crushes My brother always called me Pastor Silverspoon for years. Pastor Silverspoon, because he said, Ricky, you just touch things and, and things go well. I'm like, first of all, he didn't know me that well if he thought that. But it was kind of a joke. I mean, you know, on Christmas morning, I would get the puppy. Puppy jumps out of the box. Caesar was his name. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I never threw a pinch of incense toward him. A few bones, but that no. So I have my little puppy, and I'm over there playing with my puppy, and Ron opens up his brand new stereo set, and it didn't work. We were sitting in the restaurant, and I pulled the straw paper just back far enough and shoot it right into my dad's eye. Ping! Worked every time. Every time Ron tried to fire off a piece of straw paper, it stuck. Pastor Silverspoon. Ron said something to me years ago, and it upset me at the time. I have come to recognize he was absolutely right. Early on, as we were youth pastors, so this is, wow, 30 years ago, Ron said, you know, Rick, until you really face some hard times, you're not going to understand people in ministry. How dare you, Mr. Hard Times? It's right. It's true. And things we do not understand until we have had affliction. Suffering crushes. It has a crushing effect. It crushes things like, well, like pride. Suffering crushes arrogance. 
and vanity and, and selfishness and ambition. And you know what? Even in the church, you've seen it, we know it. Many of us have felt it. Pride, arrogance, vanity, selfishness, and ambition. Even in the study of the Word of God. Oh, I got this book down. Yeah. I got every answer necessary. I can tell you truths that will shock you to your socks. That's not what it's about. Suffering. True suffering crushes. It crushes a religious spirit. Suffering will grind out things that don't and cannot last. Like, oh, Paul said, wood, hay, and straw. I'm sharing this because some of you are right now suffering for one reason or another. And rather than playing the victim, to turn around and recognize maybe God's got something in this. Maybe He is yet crushing out something in me that cannot last, that will not last. Things that we think are so important, suffering will crush these things. And suffering, philipsis, tribulation, it purifies and it proves a true, genuine faith. Testing. Why is that so important? Because of the word with which we began, testimony. Testimony. When we suffer under persecution, we start to look more like Jesus Himself. We become the testimony of Christ. See, He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 55 tells us. He was crushed for our iniquities. But listen, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted, Philipsis, in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The testimony of Jesus. That is Smyrna. That is the suffering church. Bringing about the sweet fragrance of the testimony of Christ. And my friends, it is not self-inflicted. And I this last week had to repent for being sorrowful over things that I had imposed upon myself. Feeling the martyr because I made stupid choices that had fallout on me. Sorrowful to repentance, yes. But the fallout of stupid sin, we need to repent and move on from that. Or the helpless, helpless repetition of generational dysfunction, we just keep playing out what our fathers and our fathers' fathers and mothers were in there too. They were dysfunctional too, ladies. We're all dysfunctional. <laughs> no, listen, it is following Jesus along the way of the cross. That is the suffering to which we have been called, every one of us, to follow Jesus on the way of the cross. He said, Matthew 16, 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will 
find it. This has been difficult for me this week. In fact, Wednesday night, got home after the, the harvest festival, which was a festival. That was so much fun. Cam, fantastic job. It was just, it was wonderful. Great evening of fellowship. And if you missed it this year and we're here next year, you need to come to it. But I got home and I'm, I'm lying there in bed. And I was so comfortable. See, we have this, we have this mattress topper, you know. And we, we bought this new mattress a couple of years ago and we have this topper on it. And it's just, I lie down and it's like I'm lying in a cloud. And I'm lying there just comfortable. I'm wide awake. Cheryl's already asleep and... And so I thought, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit. I'm in my cozy home. I was thinking about that. I love my home, especially in the fall. The rain's coming and it's dark and it's windy outside. I could hear it pattering on the windows. I just love my home. My comfy bed. I reached over there to my convenient iPhone. And I'm just reading things, looking at the news. And I went over to Blue Letter Bible and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to be studying Smyrna in the morning. I'm just going to read the letter. And I started reading the letter. And I got more and more uncomfortable as I read. Suddenly that mattress topper didn't mean a thing. (laughs) And I began to pray, Lord, are we supposed to pursue this persecution? Are we supposed to chase this down? Are, are, Are you asking us here to invite suffering and sorrow? I like my comfy bed and my cozy house and my convenient iPhone. I like my life. I love my church. Don't you all love showing up here on a Sunday morning and we're putting up wood on the walls? It's going to look like a barn again? I love this. And I'm praying about this. I'm saying, Lord, how do we apply such things? And, and here's the question that came to mind. Do we live to die purified do we live to die purified that is do I live rich to God would I rather give it to the Lord give it up for the Lord offer it out to works of missions and and to the persecuted church in this world would I rather get rid of it or do I want to pile it up in my storage units do I live rich to God Do I trust His divine economy? Can I accept crushing affliction when it comes as purification? Will I be faithful until death? The testimony of Jesus, however I am called to live, whatever I am called to face, can I be faithful until death and so receive the crown of life? You see, the application is for us. We don't bemoan the fact that we are the American church. Though I get on to the American church because I are the American church and part of the American church, I have to wear being here. And it's not that we're going to say, Oh, Lord, we're so ashamed of the blessing. Remove for us this building. Cast us into the rain. That's just stupid. But I'll tell you what. I do believe we are to pray, Lord, make us uncomfortable. Put a burden on our hearts for those who are persecuted. Pull us out of our safety zones and into the fray for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be willing to be made fun of at work 
Because we are speaking the name Jesus while our North Korean brothers and sisters are going to prison for it. Let's live the life. Live that we might die purified. For in the P.S., the final comments here of Jesus to Smyrna, He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death... Oh, you know what that is. The first death, that's physical death. That's, you just die. Everybody dies unless you're raptured. The first death is physical. It's temporal. The second death, that's the one to fear. That is the spiritual death. That is the eternal death. In Revelation 20, verse 14, that's the death that John calls the lake of fire. But if you overcome... If you are one of those who overcome by faith in Jesus Christ, you are among those over whom the second death has no power. He repeats that. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. May we live to die purified. Let's stand together. It was D.L. Moody who said in my favorite Moody quote, He who is born once will die twice, the first and the second death. But he who is born twice will die once, and then I like to add, if at all. Because if you're born again, you may never die if you are alive at the time of the rapture of the church, which I believe is imminent. If you are born again, though your body dies, you will be the first to rise in the first resurrection. And the second death will have no hold on you. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So my last question to you this morning is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? You may say, how can I be? Very simple. Believe that he came and that he died and that he rose from the dead. And confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord and you will live forever the testimony of Jesus. Won't you come? If there's anything that we can pray for you, we'll have people in the front and at the back tables as well. Let's sing together. Come to Jesus. Mm -hmm.